You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. I hope that you had a good Thanksgiving, church family. I also hope we have a white Christmas this year. And I hope you brought a sack lunch with you today because we are going to spend some time together right now in the Word. You're not going to need that lunch. But all three of those statements I just made, while fine to say, are not examples of biblical hope. Hope is a word we use in our language frequently, and it's fine the way we use it. But a lot of times we're just expressing a preference. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope it does rain tomorrow. Hoping doesn't make it happen. When we talk about hope, which is what we're going to be doing today, it's going to be something that's way more solid, way more stabilizing. We're going to look at it through the lens of God's Word. I want to approach it from a different direction, though, at the beginning here. I want us to think about the opposite of hope. If you were to try to think of a word that would express the opposite of hope, you might say hopeless, which would be spot on, obviously. But I prefer the word despair. Despair, because of the way I define the word despair. I, I hear despair and I think desperate for air. Desperate for air. That feeling that the darkness that is encroaching is going to overwhelm me. Some of you may be in a place right now where your being here in this room right now is miraculous because you are going through a time of despair. Others of you immediately trigger back to a time where you went through something, or maybe someone you love may be going through that. I think that the devil must have, as one of his main military strategies, these fiery darts of despair because of the impact that can have and the ripple effect that it can have in our lives. Christians, I want to be clear on this, are not immune to despair and hopelessness. All right, Grace Church Salado has never been a church since I've been here for the last year that feels the need to put on a fake mask when we come together, to pretend like we've got it all worked out and we don't have any personal struggles. We can be real. We can be authentic with one another. And at times, Christians find themselves struggling with hopelessness or despair. We're going to talk about why that is and how to fight that in a moment. Here's how I think that despair works. First, I think the devil delights to send fiery darts toward us with the expressed intent of shifting our focus from Jesus to our pain or to our problem or to maybe a hurtful person in our life. That fiery dart comes in, that focus shifts, and the next thing that happens is that darkness sets in as we begin to dwell on a particularly painful point. So what started as maybe a fleeting thought, maybe you stay there and you begin to dwell in that. Stay with me. Despair descends as we begin to believe that pain is permanent. That's the way despair works. That's the way hopelessness works. Nothing is going to change. I don't think this is going to get better. And we begin to feel that crushing weight of despair. I want you to hear what I'm about to say, and I want you to hear how I explain it because I don't want to be misunderstood. But it's a powerful statement, so I want you to hear it. 
I believe that the follower of Jesus Christ, the follower of Jesus Christ, never has to feel hopeless. I don't believe that Christians ever have to feel hopeless. Now, I just said a while ago that we're not immune to it. We do feel those things, but I don't believe we ever have to feel hopeless. Why do we do it then? Why do we find ourselves in places? Well, sometimes it's what I just said that the enemy does in shifting our focus to one of those things. Sometimes it's because we begin to focus on a desired outcome. I want this to happen. And we put our hope in that desired outcome. And we spiritualize it by praying about it, by by talking with other believers about it, this desired outcome that we want to see in our lives. But our hope is fixed on that. Our hope is in seeing that desired outcome. And if that desired outcome doesn't happen, or if it begins to take too long to happen, or if we begin to think it's never going to happen, then we lose that hope because that hope has lost its fuel. But that wasn't biblical hope. This hoping in a desired outcome is something that is not what the Bible means when it talks about biblical hope. I went through a season of struggling at one point in my life, and that was one of the greatest lessons that God taught me. The difference between hoping in a desired outcome versus hoping in God. If we walk through this world without a wartime mentality... So that we aren't wearing our spiritual armor, we aren't carrying our shield of faith, we aren't taking up our sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, then despair is practically guaranteed. Here's how I'm going to tackle hope this morning. Here's my sermon in a sentence Christian hope is grounded in what Christ has done while groaning for what Christ will do. You might think of yourself as as feeling a little unstable and you reach out with one hand over here and you reach out with another hand over here to stabilize yourself. Well, Christian hope is grounded in what Christ has done while groaning for what Christ will do. We want to now understand how that works with the truth of God's word. When I went through that season of difficulty and that season that genuinely became a place of despair, a place where I didn't reach the place where I didn't, where I no longer wanted to, or where I wanted to die, but I certainly reached a place where I no longer wanted to live. I, I saw no joy in living. I saw no possibilities moving forward. And God used multiple things to bring me through that. By his Holy Spirit, he used preaching, he used counseling, he used comfort from Christian friends, he used music. The thread running through all of those things and what made them so powerful in his hands was the word of God. It was biblical preaching, biblical counsel, biblical comfort from friends, and songs that were saturated with scriptural truth. God was teaching me to fight faithless feelings with the facts of God's word and to hope in him rather than simply a desired outcome. We want to be equipped to do that today. At our disposal is an endless source of fuel for our hope. Remembering what Jesus has done and reminding ourselves of what Jesus has yet to do. But know this, the enemy may very well use pain, a problem, another person to distract us. If we are not careful, 
If we continue to set our mind on that pain, on that problem, on this other person, and you know how our minds can sometimes fixate, if we continue to do that, that pain, that problem, that other person may define us. And if that course isn't changed, we may find that pain, that problem, or that other person devouring us. Some of you may be in the middle of that process right now, something that's, that's taken root in your heart, in your mind, or on a soul level. I've prayed for your freedom this morning. To fight, to fight for hope. We're going to have to do what feels counterintuitive. Sometimes it feels responsible to be thinking about our problem, to be thinking about our pain, to be thinking about this other person. I'm taking it seriously, so I'm spending some time thinking about it. But you know as well as I do that we could do that in a godless way. So this morning, we're going to take those things that, that have some importance and we're going to set them down. I just want you to choose to set it down. I want you to say, addressing that is so important that it's essential that I be clear thinking when I do. So right now, I'm going to just set it down. Where do we set it? We'll just set it down at the foot of the cross. Just set it there. And we're going to shift our focus back to him, him alone. And we're going to swim. Last week, David preached and he shared a story that's going to get a lot of mileage through this series. He shared the story of, in 1952, Florence Chadwick desiring to be the first woman ever to swim across the Catalina Channel. He shared the difficulties that she faced. You can go back and listen to all the details. But the tragedy was this. She swam 20 miles, 20 miles against the current with the wind and the fog set in so thickly, sharks around her in the waters, that she eventually, with incredible discouragement, asked to be pulled from the water. Her mother was in one of the support boats cheering her on, but she reached a point where she couldn't go further, and she gave up. Pulled from the water in the middle of that fog, it wasn't long until she saw that that she could not see before. She was only one mile away from the shore when she gave up. A 21-mile task, she gave up after 20 miles. She was interviewed, and she said this. I looked this up. She said, look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I know I could have made it. Two months later, she tried again, but the fog was just as thick. However, this time, she didn't stop swimming, and she made it. And she shattered the previous record, set a new record for doing this. We've all had hard times where the fog rolls in and we can't see the shore and we begin to lose hope. Some of you right now hearing these words are in the middle of that. Those foggy times are confusing, disorienting, painful. Your fog may be related to a broken relationship with someone else. It may be financial focused. It may be something regarding your work or your children or your future. For whatever reason, you're in this thick, dense fog. The fog makes you want to give up. My challenge is this. In your mind, see the shore and swim some more. In your mind, see the shore and swim some more. In other words, though the fog, the purpose of this fog may be to cause us to focus and fixate only on this moment, in your mind, see beyond this. See where we're headed. See the shore and swim some more. Keep going. 
filled with hope, looking forward to the return of the king and the consummation of all things. Jesus endured the cross by focusing what was on the other side of it, for the joy set before him, the joy that would be gained. That's how he kept swimming. Press on through the fog, filled with hope for what awaits you on the shoreline, knowing that what's on that shoreline will be worth it. I love that we are getting to tackle Advent this year by looking not only to Jesus' first coming, but to his second coming. And that's going to be what anchors us today. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where you're turning. David was there last week. We're going to continue this week in Romans 8. Sixth book of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. While you're turning to Romans 8, let me remind you of these familiar words. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A weary world rejoices is our series that we're preaching in today, and specifically this message is on a thrill of hope. In Romans 8, verse 18 through 25, the Apostle Paul, who knew his share of suffering because of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, who had been arrested on multiple occasions, who was beaten with rods, who had been stoned and left for dead, writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look, if you want to understand how to suffer well, talking to someone like the Apostle Paul is going to be key because he really went through it and yet kept swimming. How is he doing that? He tells us. When he says, I consider, he's letting you in on his thought process. And he considers that the sufferings of this present time, he doesn't deny that he's suffering, but he goes, that's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he develops that thought. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, talking about the fall into sin. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, meaning going through that pain with the, toward the joy that's on the other side. And not only the creation, verse 23, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? For adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You don't go out of church, find yourself in the parking lot in a downpour and go, you know what, I hope it rains today. Everyone give you this weird look. You don't have to hope for it anymore. You can scratch that one off your list. It's already happening. Who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25. 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Christian hope is grounded in what Christ has done while groaning for what Christ will do. In addition to that sermon in a sentence, I'm going to take two stabs at defining Christian hope. And the first one is hope is a Godward groaning. And the second one, hope is a worshipful waiting. I want to talk about both of those. First of all, hope is a Godward groaning. Back in verse 20 through 22, Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning together because of the effects of sin, longing for Christ to come and restore all things. And I like wrestling with Scripture. You can do it in a way that is from a place of faith. So I find myself going, really? Really, Paul? Hmm. The whole creation groaning. So I started going, do galaxies groan? Do, does dirt groan? Do gorillas groan? Yes, they do. But do grapes groan? And the answer to all those questions is, in a sense, yes. Yes. Because they're all part of this fallen world. Paul is emphasizing that because of sin, all is not right with this world. Because of sin, there is so much wrong with this world. But he's emphasizing that Jesus is going to restore this world. As David said in his message last week, the shalom of universal flourishing has been shattered by sin. Creation as a whole is longing for the consummation or completion of God's radical rescue plan and his reconciliation of all things. So the whole creation has a Godward groaning. And Paul says in verse 23, we ourselves have a Godward groaning. We've got this groaning inside of us. Now, all over this room, if you could measure that groaning, it would be, I think, on a spectrum. I don't believe that we are always groaning inwardly as we should. So I think this, the closer we walk in fellowship with God, the more we will feel out of place in this world. And that Godward groaning will intensify. The closer we walk with God, the more out of step we're going to be with this world. And we're going to have that longing within us to be with him. That craving for things to be restored by him. That yearning for all things to be made right by him. Christian hope is grounded in what Christ has done while groaning for what Christ will do. Hope is a Godward groaning. And secondly, hope is a worshipful waiting. The way that we wait for Jesus to return and make things right can be worshipful when we wait in these three ways. We're to wait spiritually, first of all. And what I mean when I say wait spiritually, I'm referencing how he said that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit are waiting. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit our way. Having the first fruits of the Spirit means that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ to save us, the Holy Spirit came to indwell us as a deposit of what is to come when we're in his actual presence one day. And if we're to wait spiritually for his return in a way that is worshipful, I believe that means being filled with the Spirit to overflowing so that spiritual fruit flows out of us. If we're waiting for him in that way, that's worship. We're to wait spiritually. Verse 19 and verse 23 says says that we are to wait eagerly 
eagerly. How do, we, how do we wait eagerly? We do it by knowing that it is far better to be away from this body and to be with him. There's a lot of wonderful things in this world. Sometimes when we're in the fog, we can't see it. But at other times, he amazes us, whether it's people or the things he's made. But Paul was so clear that it was far better to be absent from the body and to be with Christ in his actual presence one day that he wrestled with, which is better? To live is Christ, to die is gain. And yet he was able to conclude, it's not time yet. There's still things God is gonna do in me and through me for your purpose, he wrote to the church at Philippi. We need to wait eagerly, eager for his return, and we are to wait patiently, verse 25 says, patiently, which means we're trusting his perfect timing. A lot of us, a lot of us are impatient right now in this regard. We're ready. We're done. Come on back, Jesus. I, I, think, I think it's time right now, and yet we trust that he knows best. And so what we want to do is, well, imagine this. Imagine that we're on a swim team, and the coach says, all right, I want you all to be swimming laps. I got to go take care of something. I'm going to be back in a little bit. When I get back, I want to, I want to find you swimming. And imagine we all start swimming laps. Coach leaves. We see him leave. People begin to respond in different ways. Some begin to slow down. I'm not going to give all my effort. Coach isn't watching. Some might actually stop, take a little bit of a break. Coach isn't here. And others just keep swimming. Maybe because you love the coach. You respect the coach. You desire to please the coach. And when that coach comes back, you want him to find you swimming. When Christ returns, I want him to find us faithful. I want him to find us being obedient to the very end. Hope is worshipful waiting. So if you're here today and you're like, got it, but, but I don't have a lot of hope, how do I gain hope? Here's what I would say to you. If you want hope, don't start with hope. Start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. Start by embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of God's grace, in a nutshell, is this. God is holy. We are sinful, separated by our sin. Sent in love, Jesus died to bear God's wrath on our behalf and resurrected gives us life and is our joy as we repent and place our lifelong faith in him. You might have heard that message a hundred times, but have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus to save you and lead you? I want to ask you a question. Maybe someone here who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, but you're hearing me talk about Jesus coming back, let me ask you this. When you think about Jesus coming back, maybe you go further to think about how you will stand before the God who made you. Does that make you feel hopeful? If you were to say yes, my next question would be, on what are you building that hope? Does that idea make you hopeful because you're a pretty good person? Majority of the people in the world fall into that category. Not afraid to stand before God, 
because they've tried to live a pretty good life. And somewhere along the line, they believe that God does this when we stand before him. All right, hang on. Let me take your good and your bad. And okay, all right, all right. More good than bad, you're, you're okay. Come on in. And that's not the way it works. God's standard isn't good enough. It's holy perfection. If, if you're building your hope on this reality that you're, you're, you're a pretty good person, you did your best, then what you're doing is you're building your hope on yourself. And that hope's going to crumble in his holy presence. So you might say, well, then what's the alternative? Well, I'm gonna, I'll answer that question for you, and I'll answer it in a very personal way for myself. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We sang it a while ago. Do you mean it? When you think about standing before God, are you able to be filled with hope, even in his holy presence, because your hope is built on nothing less, because anything else is less, nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When I say that, what I'm saying is, I am counting completely on the cross of Jesus Christ as my only hope of being made right with our holy God. I'm not looking to myself and my efforts to be good. I'm looking at Jesus and his perfect righteousness. I'm looking to Jesus and what he did on the cross in my place. When I say that that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, I mean that when he died on the cross, he was taking my place. He was taking my punishment, the righteous wrath of our holy God that I deserved because I had committed sin crimes against God. I look to that blood that he willingly shed to pay the price for my sins. And when I say my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, and righteousness than Jesus's righteousness, it means that I am embracing the biblical truth of this reality, that when I repented of my sins and put my faith in Jesus Christ, this incredible exchange took place as my sin was placed on Jesus and his righteousness was imputed to me so that now when I go to God in prayer, he doesn't do this. When I go to God in prayer, he sees me through the lens of his son. He sees me with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, and welcomes me to come boldly into his presence. My hope is built on nothing less. Make sure that you are a repenting and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Knowing hope is found in knowing Jesus. If you want more hope, spend more time knowing Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus, worshiping Jesus, trusting Jesus, obeying Jesus. Christian hope is grounded in what Christ has done while groaning for what Christ will do. You may say, got it, Kyle. I am a Christian. I have put my faith in Christ, but I'm going to be honest with you, still struggling at times with hope. Not feeling as hopeful as I believe God would want me to. How can I gain more? To which I would say, I've been telling you all morning. Are you listening? Stay with me. All right? Here's how you do it. All right? We're going to break it down. I want to be practical. I said, hope is grounded in what Christ has done. So remember. Remember. In the middle of the fog, by his grace, remember creation. The Gospel of John tells us, that even though Jesus' name wasn't mentioned in Genesis, that Jesus was the agent of creation. 
tells us that nothing was made apart from him, that everything was made through Jesus. So think of creation. Think of what Jesus has done. That's the Jesus we're following. Think about his incarnation. Think about that, that, that manger scene and marvel. Marvel because you know the baby is not the beginning. That's not the beginning of Jesus' story. Jesus is eternal. When we see the baby in the manger, we know that that's when eternity stepped into time. We know that that's when eternity put on an earth suit. And we marvel at the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Remember Jesus' perfect obedience as you think through his life and how he lived in radical dependence on the Father and full obedience to the Father. Remember his crucifixion. Remember how he told the disciples on at least three occasions that we have recorded that this is why I came. This is what's going to happen. That he wasn't a victim at the cross, that he willingly laid down his life and he did it for you. Remember that. Remember that he really died, that he was buried, but that he rose again. That Jesus is alive and well. And he appeared to many, to hundreds, before ascending. Remember his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And remember what he's doing right now. Scripture says that he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. As you're filling your mind with all of this biblical truth, it can begin to crowd out those other things that were making everything feel so hopeless. Hope is grounded in what Christ has done, and hope is groaning for what Christ will do. So remind yourself, remind yourself of the shoreline toward which we swim. Three things. Remind yourself, one, that Jesus will return. This, this, this world feels permanent a lot of times, right? It feels like this all there is to it. But we know, we know Jesus will return. Remind yourself of that. Let that stir a groaning inside of you. Find yourself praying, come Lord Jesus. But until you do, energize me to be faithful. Second thing, our adoption will be fully realized. Remind yourself that when Jesus returns, our adoption will be fully realized. We read that in verse 23. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. This is one of those places where I wrestle with Scripture as I'm going through this, and I say, wait a second. Wait a, like I, 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 didn't, I, don't, I don't just read that sentence and say amen. I read that sentence and say, oh my, I thought I already was adopted. Is, is that... It's not, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen when he comes back. What's going on there? And so that's why I worded this point the way I did. When Jesus returns, our adoption will be fully realized. Make no mistake, the motion was filed. The papers were signed. The judge has ruled. Our adoption is finalized. It is finished. So nothing unclear, unstable about that. But, but, that joyous moment on the shore when we run into the arms of our Father who adopted us is yet to come. And so we wait, we groan inwardly longing for that. The third thing that we remind ourselves of, Jesus will return, our adoption will be fully realized, and three, our bodies will be finally redeemed. That's what it said. We groan inwardly, verse 23, as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And this is where we can connect with all of creation, groaning together for God to put right what once went wrong. 
The heavens will be renewed. The earth will be renewed. Our bodies will be renewed, glorified, and freed from the destructive effects of sin. No more sickness. No more death. No more pain. No more cancer. No more sore throats. No more Parkinson's. No more pulled hamstrings. No more cedar fever. Praise the Lord. And revival broke out right there. Christian hope is grounded in what Christ has done while groaning for what Christ will do. I want to end with a, 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 this, I don't know, it's cool. Just stay with me. In an extremely difficult season of his life, a writer chose to write words of worship. And he wrote about his agony and his tears, didn't try to put a plastic coating over it, He just lets it be raw and messy. But then he comes to the chorus, powerful chorus. He writes more talking about the struggle. Then he comes to that chorus again. I'm talking about Psalm 42. For the sake of time, I'm just going to focus in on verse 11, that chorus, where writing about his pain, he abruptly addresses himself and says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So as your heart and mind and soul are flooded with reasons for doubt and discouragement and despair, stop that darkness in its tracks by doing two things that the psalmist does. First, fight those faithless feelings with the facts of God's word. Fight those faithless feelings with the facts of God's word. The psalmist doesn't let his mind wander into further weariness. He stops himself in his tracks by speaking directly to his own soul. And you may be like, I thought only crazy people talk to themselves. No, crazy people answer themselves. It's okay to speak to your soul, all right? It's okay to say, soul, why are you in despair? Why why are you feeling hopeless? Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God right now, soul. Hope in God. He's nothing less than your salvation. So the writer fights those faithless feelings with three kinds of facts. You can spend more time in Psalm 42 and 43 seeing this. Facts about what God has done, what God is like, and what God will do. That's how you fight faithless feelings, by setting your mind on what God has done, what God is like, and what God will do. Don't just listen to the voices in your head. Preach to your own soul. So first, fight those faithless feelings with the facts of God's word. And second, put your hope in God alone. That's what he said, hope in God. Hoping it snows on Christmas is fine, but it's not biblical hope. That's just a preference for a desired outcome. I want to say something. It's the weirdest thing that I could say on a sermon about hope. But listen to me. Listen to the fullness of what I'm going to say. Your situation may not improve. You may not be healed in this life. Your problem may persist. That other person, they may not forgive you. Let's close in prayer. Just kidding. Can you imagine? How depressing would that be? No. Those things are real, but God is our rock, and he, listen to me, he is enough. 
even if all those other things don't change. He's enough, and we can hope in God most easily, continuing to swim toward the shoreline if we believe in our heart of hearts, believe on a soul level that God is sovereign, holy, and good. There are 73,000 things we could talk about God, but at one point in my life, I chose to focus on three of them because I call it the trifecta of trustworthiness. If God really is sovereign, if he really is holy, if he really is good, then we can really trust him, and he is those things. He's sovereign, so you're hoping in the one who's in control. He's holy, so you're hoping in the one who does no wrong. He's good, so you're hoping in the one who has your best interests at heart. When you hope in God, you aren't shaken by pain. You feel the pain, but it doesn't shake you in that same way. Those things still hurt like crazy, but they don't have to paralyze us. They don't have to traumatize us. They don't have to destabilize us. Christian hope is grounded in what Christ has done while groaning for what Christ will do. Pray with me right now. Jesus, you are the cause of our creation. You are the source of of our salvation. You are our hope and our righteousness, and you're with us right now in this foggy mess. You will return in glorious might, and you will make the wrong things right. Our hope is in you alone. Come, Lord Jesus, and help us keep swimming toward the shore until you do. In your name we pray, amen.